Hey, everybody, it's Lee. I know we're heading into the offseason, so we wanted to give a shout-out to our title sponsor, NHL Sense Arena, one more time. And again, we have a coupon for $50 off an annual subscription when you use Hockey Never Stops at hockey.sensearena.com. I always like to remind everybody, I've been using this thing for six months, and I'm just blown away, not just from the VR aspect of it and the virtual reality side of things, but the ability to give different perspectives of the game, whether I'm playing as a goaltender, and I got to admit, it is really hard, but it has really given me a perspective from that point of hockey, which has made me a better coach and a better ice hockey player, or the skater modes, which help you work on cognitive skills and other things like heads-up play that you don't normally get to work on in a practice or a game. So I implore you to check it out. It helps us out. It helps them out. Support our title sponsor, NHL Sense Arena. Get $50 off an annual subscription when you use Hockey Never Stops at Hockey.SenseArena.com. Again, that's Hockey Never Stops. That's the code at Hockey.SenseArena.com. Check it out. And without further ado, enjoy this episode of Our Kids Play Hockey. What's up, everybody? It's Lee with Our Kids Play Hockey. Got a special edition version of the podcast today. We're rehashing an older podcast that we did uh, in late 2019, before the dark times. Uh, Mike Benelli and I got to sit down with Dave Starman and Lou Vero, who is the godfather of USA Hockey, just to talk about his life and talk about some of the amazing stories. Anybody who knows Lou Vero knows he can tell a story uh, that he's had during his time in USA Hockey. And we wanted to put it together. It was originally a three-part series with We Live Hockey, uh, but we put it all together into one singular podcast for this audience, uh, mainly because we think you're going to find a lot of value in it. Um, and number two, it's just a really great, great podcast that uh, we wanted to share with this audience. So without further ado, check out this uh, episode here. It's Our Kids Play Hockey with Lou Vero, um, recorded in 2019. Let us know what you think. You can always email us at team at ourkidsplayhockey.com, and you can check out all the other episodes at ourkidsplayhockey.com. Thanks so much. Enjoy this, and Happy New Year. When we think of USA Hockey coaching, most minds turn, understandably, to Herb Brooks and the 1980 Olympic team, which was one of Brooks's two stints as head coach of Team USA. Lou Vero has been at the helm of Team USA, which includes the junior national and men's senior national teams, 11 times. When you add in appearances as an assistant coach, Vero has been involved with world championship and Olympic teams 16 times since 1976, in addition to two years as an assistant coach in the NHL. We recently had the opportunity to sit down with Coach Vero at an early September USA Coaching Dinner event in Long Island, New York. Although he did not know it at the time of our interview, the event that would follow later that night would be a celebration of his hockey career, which would include several high-ranking members of USA Hockey and former players that spanned Vero's 40-plus year career. Joining me for the interview and the celebration of Coach Vero's career are two of those distinguished guests. Dave Starman, the top USA and collegiate hockey analyst in the country, in addition to being a master-level USA hockey coach, and Mike Benelli, a longtime volunteer with USA Hockey as a member of the coaching development staff and contributor to the American development model. He's also the primary driver around a national outreach program to introduce new players to the game with a modern approach to street and floor hockey. In this episode, Lou recounts three stories from the 2000 IIHF World Championships in St. Petersburg, Russia that had an impact on him, but more importantly, the careers of three players that were on the team that would go on to have NHL careers. We'll let Lou set the scene. Let me tell you what happened. We got off the bus. The parking lot had no cars in it. 
the, the building was filled an hour before teams got there. Russia and you had filled, singing, drinking. The parking lots had big screens. It was the most, to that date, it was probably the most viewed hockey game ever in the history of the sport because of the Russians were waiting. They had Gancha, Gasparitis, Zhanov, Kravchuk, Yashin, Bure, Finnegimov, Kaminsky, that's something. They had all, many people. We had, I'm not making fun, I'm just saying, we had one legitimate star player, Phil Housley. He came as a personal favor to me. So we get there on the bus, and the, it, you can't talk to the team. It was just jammed. There had to be 20,000 people in the parking lot standing. The building was physically rocking. It was full. This is before warm-ups. I never spoke to the team. I couldn't, you couldn't hear anything. It was, it was police and soldiers everywhere. Putin was there. Putin's governor of St. Petersburg was there. It was wild. So we go in. And I did, we got out to the bench, I just said, just soak it up. I yelled, I had a scream. Soak it up, remember it forever, just have fun. Go out there and play as hard as you can for your country and each other. That was it. One of the players on the team that year was Hal Gill, who at the time was just three years into his eventual 17-year NHL career. Lou tells the story of how a quote from Yarmir Yager resulted on Gil being chosen for the team and in turn, changing the course of his career. Nobody wanted to coach. I wasn't coaching actively then. And uh, Doug Palazzari was my boss. He came in and he said, Lou, you got to coach the team. Jimmy Johansson's first year, Jimmy was a dear friend of mine. We helped him get hired, me and Art Berglund. And Art uh, was kind of phasing out and breaking Jimmy in. And I said, no, I'm not, I don't even have my skates anymore. I'm not coaching. <clears throat> he said, you have to coach. I said, why? He says, nobody wants to coach the team. They're not going to have a good team. And uh, we don't even have a goalie right now. The only guy we got is Damian Rhodes, and he's injured with Atlanta. I said, I, I can't do it. I, I, it's in Russia. You know those people, and you're comfortable there. We want you to do it. And the Dougie says, look, Lou, I'm your boss. Don't forget that. You're doing it. I said, no, I'm not doing it. Fire me. I dare you to fire me. I'm not doing it. And I went to my office, and I went, hockey news. I started reading an article, Yager, an interview with Yager. And I thought about it. And I read this article. It was a great interview. Yager was leading the league in scoring, and I watched him since he was 17 play. I knew he was a really good player, and I knew whose dad wasn't how we played and all us and uh, here he is playing for Pittsburgh and I had talked to Bob Johnson when Bob took the team over about him and in it he said a question one question was who's the toughest defenseman in the league to get around you know to, for you to play against and I wasn't following NHL hockey as closely as I had all my life he said, Hal Gill in Boston is the hardest for me to get around. I'd never heard of the guy. So I walked, I took the article, the paper with me, I went down to the office, to their office. They were together, Jimmy and Art. And I said, Hal Gill, is he American or Canadian? 
in Art said, he's he's uh, Mary played at Providence. Not that good a player. Jimmy said, hmm. I've seen him. He's not. I said, all right, I'll coach the team. <coughs> I want to have Gill on the team. <laughs> it's a true story. Put him on the team. And they looked at me. They said, you, you never heard of him. I said, I never heard of him until <laughs> 10 minutes ago. But if he's good enough for Yaramir Yaga, leading the NHL and scoring, he's good enough for me. Period. Put him on the team and I'll do it. And they did. And uh, he was petrified. Hal <laughs> Gill. I, met, I, just, I didn't know he was. So we're over there and we're at our first practice. I, we, after practice was over, we, I leaned on the crossbar of the net and I said to those guys, I said, oh Christ, I said, these kids are pretty good. I was really impressed with the way they skated and handled the puck. Compared to my last time around, you know, 15 years earlier with American kids at mm -hmm. that level. These guys can play. So I said, any questions, guys? Good workout. We'll go eat now and relax and we're off to Finland. Uh, we get ready for the game tomorrow against the Finnish national team. Hal Gill raises his hand. He says, how do you want to play against the trap? I wasn't following all that. I said, what the hell is the trap? <laughs> That's the truth. And they told me, I, ah, okay, okay. I said, you never stop behind the net. Pick up the puck. Beat the first four check, period. Beat them. Now we got a five on four for two and a half, three seconds. We should use the whole width of the rink, not just the length. Get open. It's your job to get open. The guys without the puck and... And we're off to the races. That's what you do. Don't go behind the net and stop. Right up. Hal was mortified. <laughs> he said, that's not how we do it in Boston. We have, it, It's got to go off the glass into the neutral zone. Hal says, Coach, what if, what if there's a, a turnover? I said, we got three goalies. One from college and two, one from the American League and one from the NHL. What are they supposed to do? <laughs> you think they came on this trip to sightsee and watch? <laughs> they got to make saves. Yeah. That's what happened. Hey. Don't worry. You can do it. I can do it. And look at the shape of me. You can do it. You know, I still think it changed. Well, I know it did. It changed Hal Gill's career. He got confidence. He never had a turnover. He started playing free. And, and without, he just played, like he would play if he was on a pond, playing pond hockey, not nervous, not worried, played great, he's just great. Saw him last year in Nashville, he, he was so nice, and he had such a great career, wonderful career, and I think that helped him. In addition to the 2000 World Championships changing the trajectory of Hal Gill's career, on May 1st, 2000, in front of what Lou describes as one of the most watched hockey games of all time, former Philadelphia Flyer and Phoenix Coyote Robert Esch, who was virtually an unknown goalie at the time, cemented his career through an unlikely performance after receiving unorthodox motivation from Vero himself. I started Esch all by accident because he came to me that morning and he said, the day before, he said, I got to talk to you in the lobby in the morning. And he was looked fat and had whiskers. <laughs> and I didn't even know who he was. He's from Syracuse, so I liked him because it's my home state. And uh, automatically, he has an edge. And I said to him, what's up? 
He said, I gotta go home. I said, well, why? My grandfather died. I said, oh, I'm very sorry, I'll talk to Jimmy. We'll get you out of here as quickly as we can. So I had Rosie and the, the, the third goalie was a college kid. So I said, uh, I'm glad I turned as I walked away. I said, when did he pass away? During the night, last night? Three years ago. That's what he told me. I said, you're not going. He says, I feel depressed. I said, well, undepressed. You're not going home. <laughs> you're not going home. Yeah. And I heard him. He was. He went and watched the Russians-France <coughs> game a little bit. And he was having a beer and eating pizza. And I was in the same place in the hotel doing the same thing. Guys were walking in. They had just got back from the game. And yeah. and he said, what was the final? And they said, 6 nothing, Russia. What did you think of them? The guy said, oh, they're good. They're real good. What do you think? Did you see any of it? He said, I saw it on TV a little bit. He said, uh, they're all right. That's what he said, just like that. And I didn't even think I, I should have met with the two assistant coaches and said, what do you think about tomorrow? And I, I didn't. It just clicked. It annoyed me when he said that. Yeah, they're not that good. <laughs> so I said to him, you don't think they're that good, actually? He said, I said well, good, because you're playing against them tomorrow. <laughs> Got up, pushed the rest of his beer, pizza, left. Hour and a half later, I had nothing to do, sit in the lobby, look at people. I see this guy walking by with a USA warm-up, clean-shaven, chest out, stomach in. I didn't know who it was. <laughs> so I went over and I looked. I said, is that you, She said, yep. Yeah. He had a game face. The minute I told him he was starting, he put on a game face. Yeah. And he was going to take a walk, he said. Okay, I, I never spoke to him again until uh, okay, right. after the game. I knew he was... Locked in, he he was gonna play. He was gonna he was gonna be transformed from a schlump to a a hall of famer or something. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. The final story from the 2000 World Championships took place during that same game against Russia on May 1st. It involved the most recent captain of Team USA and former Stanley Cup winner Brian Gianta, who at the time was an NCAA athlete at Boston College. Vero, who vowed that he would never coach a game in which every player on the bench didn't see the ice, admits freely that he mistakenly left Gianta out of the game that night. He goes on to speak about how Gianta handled the situation with class and went on to become a staple for USA Hockey. I didn't see him on the bench, I swear to God. We're playing with the U.S. national team in St. Petersburg, Russia, 2000. But the guy I didn't see was Brian Jonta, who was just put in the U.S. Hall of Fame. <laughs> he was a sophomore at Boston College, and I knew him since he was a little kid at our camps. And I knew he could play. And I, 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 there was no doubt in my mind. I had called Jerry York, and I said, do you think he's ready? Jerry said, sure, sure. Oh, he'll love it. Break, take him. And uh, so we brought him, but I didn't see him. <laughs> on, you couldn't move. <laughs> so, with about a minute to go in the game, Stevie Hines tugging on my, I said, he says, Coach, you never put Brian Johnson out. Maybe you <laughs> want to put him out just so he could feel he was part of it. I said, holy shit. 
<laughs> I didn't see him. He's a little guy, and I never, I just didn't see him. Yeah, he's stuck. Uh, and, 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 oh, I was so embarrassed, though. I felt so, it wasn't intentional. Sure. I said, oh, Jesus. And then I decided not to put him out, because what if I would have put him out? Right. And they scored. He's ice cold. Right. Yeah. And then I couldn't do that to Esh. Yeah. He deserved it. And then Housley's on the ice. He says, Coach, you got to say something. It's a timeout. I said, yeah, I didn't call it. They did. <laughs> he said, I know, but it doesn't look good. <laughs> say something. I said, okay, you miserable SOBs. Don't blow the shutout. That's what I told him. <laughs> and, and we didn't. And, yeah. and we won the game. And in the dressing room, they were really happy, the guys. And I told them, I said, look, i got to apologize to Brian Johnson. I am so sorry. I'm really sorry, Brian. That wasn't intentional. I, I didn't see him. Yeah. And uh, he was handled it beautifully. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, he was just captain of Team USA in the last Olympics. Is that correct? Yeah. Right? Yeah. It, it, he came out of retirement to do yeah. that. Yeah. That's an amazing story. You know, He's a great it, kid. Even though the Gianta story isn't one of Lou's favorite memories, it leads to a bigger picture coaching philosophy that Coach Vero has tried to adhere to for his entire career that no matter the level of play or talent, everyone should play in the game. Coach, I ever had roller hockey, ruined it. He ruined it. Imagine that, 14 years old, standing on the bench, only eight guys showed up for the game. I never went out once. Mm -hmm. I wasn't good. And snow coming down on Jimmy Murphy rink on Flappers and Utica Avenue in Brooklyn. And I never got out. Never put me out, not once. My brother was on the team. He was younger than me, and he was playing. And even he said something. He said, oh, why don't you say something? I said, no, not, I can't say anything. He said, he's not a real coach. He's just the guy on the team. He's about 50 years older than us. <laughs> he said, I'll smash him in the head with my staff. Said, relax, relax, relax. And, uh, but I, I, I never forgot that. Yeah. And I can tell you right now, if you don't believe me, go ask players who played for me at any level. I never pick a player to a team that doesn't play. They play. I pick them, or we pick them, and trust them. And they play. I would never do that to anybody. So if I can play players at the highest level, why can't a youth hockey coach play kids who are playing for the sheer love of the game and for fun? How could you not give them an equal opportunity to play? What kind of a person are you? You know, there's a there's a quote in our my coaching sphere. I work in coaching a bit, and the quote was, "Never be a kid's last coach." That's always got to be the goal. In addition to having every kid play, but never a be saying. a kid's last coach. It's a good saying. Yeah. If you're a fan of hockey in North America, the World Junior Championship is must-watch TV every holiday season. If you're a serious hockey player, the tournament is the international rite of passage to the professional game. However, back in the 1970s, the tournament didn't have the same draw that it does today. Lou explains how both the growth of the game, along with the dedication of people like Dave Starman, have made the World Juniors perhaps the top competition in our game. I've done the last 12 now, 11, 12 World Junior Championships for NHL Network, uh, mostly the USA games. And right after the 2009 tournament, I hadn't spoken to Lou in a while, and right after the 2009 tournament, I get an email from Lou. Really enjoyed your work and enjoyed how you talked about USA Hockey and and you're a good hockey guy. Believe in yourself and keep it up. And that's true. It, and and after every true. World Junior, I get that's the true. I get the same. He does. Excuse me. He does a great 
job. And, and I, I say this to everybody in our office and everywhere else. I know that tournament. I coached it seven times. It was one of my first jobs to put that program together for the U.S. He does a great job. He knows what he's talking about. He's a hockey man. He's a coach, a player, and a coach. And he does the inside work. He meets with scouts. He meets with coaches, talks to players. He knows what he's talking about. He, it's very... It's very... I can be lazy watching those games because I don't have to work hard to know what's going on. You do a hell of a job. That's the, if you didn't... Don't think for a minute. I wouldn't say so. <laughs> and, and that's the point, you, because you do a hell of a job. And we all know, you know, when you when you the Brooklyn guys don't lie; they they tell <laughs> like it is. And and but but every but every year, you know, I, I it's I get that phone call. And it means a lot because you can get praise from from different people, and every every nice thing that's said about you is always important. But when it comes from your peers, when it comes from somebody who's walked the steps that you wanted to walk, also it means that much more. And it it really helped invigorate. Uh, a, a lot of, of what it's I do. It's helped hockey grow big time mm -hmm. in our country. You don't realize the impact you've had, Mackenzie, all those guys, over the years with this junior tournament. Hey, we couldn't get players. The first junior team in 1975, I was assistant coach to a great hockey man and a great guy, great coach, Marshall Johnston. Art Berglund was the manager. We couldn't, I don't think we got one top player we were asking for. We didn't. We, 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 we couldn't get them. The coaches wouldn't give them up. They didn't know what the tournament was mm -hmm. and they uh, didn't want to lose, even though they only had some exhibition games Christmas. And this happened for many years. It took a long time. It's amazing what we've, we've done. So you won that you're right, you won that gold medal in two thousand four and then then it dried up for a little while. Then yeah. Canada took off and went on a great run. And then I'll tell you what, in two thousand nine and I don't like to pick on players, but in 2009, if we had gotten a save at a key time, that 2019 was primed yeah. to do big-time damage. Remember, they had Canada down 3 nothing, right? middle of the first period oh, on yeah. New Year's Eve, and then it just collapsed on them. But, I mean, that team was yeah. primed. Well, that team had a lot of good players on it. Then, in 2010, yeah. Saskatoon, they win the whole thing, and uh, on John Carlson's goal in overtime. And then 2010, 2013, 2017, I mean, that's... A couple of bronze medals thrown in there as well. I mean, when you take a look at what what we've done at the world junior level, it's it's absolutely yeah. amazing. The foundation was set, and it took a and, long and, time. Yeah. yeah, it when you stop and think of how long it took. The first one was 1975, and look where it is today. Yeah, beautiful. It's a huge event now. It's yeah, it's must watch it. TV yeah. from. Christmas Day until the gold medal game. Well, I, I think it's the best hockey <coughs> tournament in the world. There's no question. E easily. I've always said outside the Stanley Cup playoffs, it, it is the most yeah, watchable. Right. See, it's funny. I look at it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's maybe it's my college thing sure, for so long, sure, too. Right, but right. to me, it's the World Junior Tournament and then the, the, the uh, I'm men's to, tournament. But to me, they're on equal playing fields. Yeah. And I look forward to that every year. While the game has grown on the ice and the television during Vero's career, it has also grown off the ice through outreach programs and diversity initiatives. In recent years, hockey has been threatening itself by pricing new players out of the game with expensive equipment and seasonal dues. Lou discusses how affordable hockey was when he started coaching and what is being done today to make hockey accessible for a similar cost. We started the, you know, the Greater New York City Ice Hockey League about 53, 4 years ago. And uh, we didn't know what a mission statement was. Walter Yatchin was the smartest one. We were all blue-collar guys. Walter was a genius at IBM up 
in Westchester someplace, and he was really a smart guy, and a great, passionate hockey man, and Walter said, we have to have a mission statement. We never did that for the league. And the best mission statement I ever heard of since, I don't care what big words you use, he said, we'll never turn a kid away, period, for any reason. Any, any kid, they didn't have girls play. Any boy that wants to play can play. And I said, what if they don't have money? You know, it was a lot of money to for the season. Yeah. You know what it cost for the season in the, the first year? For the whole season. $50. $25. And I remember <laughs> it was a riot when we yeah. went up to 30 <clears throat> And the one thing that keeps coming back and, and something I'm very passionate about, and certainly Coach Farrow is, is putting putting access to kids and what's the best way to do that I mean all of us as hockey people uh, see when you want to promote a hockey program you know, they put the flyer up on the glass of the rink and they email the parents of the kids in your program and say hey we're doing a try hockey for free event you should all come and the point is all those kids are already playing hockey they're yeah. in your rink you're, you're in that you're in that group right I think with with the this modern floor hockey push that we're doing um, has really given the opportunity to have access so really, right now, I mean, with the Panthers, the Islanders, the Devils, uh, Pittsburgh Penguins, thousands and thousands yeah. of kids Wayne Gretzky playing hockey with Gretzky, Gretzky Hockey School, camp, yeah, Brian Trottier. Small name in the game. But yeah, so, I mean, so you look, yeah, and you yeah. look at the Brian, the Brian Trottier project, yeah. and then you look at Wayne Gretzky and his hockey schools yeah. using this modern uh, stick that everybody in Europe's known for years. I mean, this is a, this is a staple in Finnish development, yeah. Swedish development, Norwegian development. And uh, we we've just really brought it where it's a branded product, but it's but it's one that and, and Lou's says this. I could hear him yelling down the halls of USA Hockey. Get hockey in elementary school. Get yeah. it when the, the first thing kids touch in sports should be a hockey stick, and that's really the mission we have. Uh, you had a great answer when we were talking before, which I want you to repeat. But I, I think that one of the things that that is really touching on what you talked about is is getting the stick in the hands of kids, and it doesn't have to be ice hockey. Yeah. Like it could be any kind of hockey that you want to play. And like I said, we grew up playing ball hockey in the street. Yeah. We grew up playing roller hockey, and we played ice hockey as well. But depending on what community you go into and where you go, you know, is ice available, is ice not available? But you could just as easily get out, and I know the tennis aficionados are going to go crazy now, but you could just as easily get out on the tennis courts yeah. when they're not being used and go play ball hockey on the tennis courts or on the basketball ball. courts. And, and you can play in the street and, and whatever the case is. I mean, it doesn't matter. And you know kids. I mean, listen, look at the kids in Brooklyn. They made up games as they went along. You give a kid a stick in a can, they'll figure out something to play, right? And that's really the key. It's, it's the whole concept of holding something like this yeah. down or whichever way you shoot and moving a ball around, moving a puck around, then creating some traffic and, and getting the game going. But I think the challenge of of all of us is the outreach program of how do we get that material into the hands of those kids through the administration of the schools, through the phys ed departments, especially with gym now being two or three days a week as opposed to five yeah. like it used to be. I think that's a big challenge for us. Well, well, Lou said real quick too. You know, when he when he says twenty five dollars in nineteen forty to play hockey, yeah. it's twenty five dollars right now to play hockey. And with that stick, it's a twenty. If it's not, you know, right now we're asking kids to go out and buy even with the the free equipment and the try hockey for free. And you got we were asking kids to get helmets and elbow pads and shoulder pads and skates and and get to a rink. This is a product that is you're playing. And, and again, whether it's roller hockey, ball hockey, street hockey, you're playing. You're playing hockey, and I think that yeah. you know Lou obviously. I mean that tagline. You think about the people he just mentioned that were playing with for him. 
I mean, that is hockey is for everyone. I mean, there literally is the definition of, of where the NHL and, and USA Hockey is right now. <laughs> that was being done, you know, at the, at the very beginning of, yeah. of the, 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 the seed of USA Hockey. So it's, it's funny to come uh, full circle and go back to the grassroots. Say, what are your thoughts on this? There's no reason every kid in our country shouldn't have a boy and girl should have the opportunity to have a stick like this provided by the school. Maybe they don't pay for it. Maybe we have sponsors. Maybe we can put names of sponsors on the sticks and give it to the schools. Everybody should be involved in it, everybody. Because you're developing fans as well as players. And you may develop players. You might not get that many players, but you'll get kids doing a healthy activity and at least being exposed, especially in kids from the inner city and, and uh, kids that don't come from areas that don't traditionally play hockey. But they might love it and they might want to uh, play it. And this gives them a chance to run around in a gym or a schoolyard with a ball, simple gym teacher supervision, and have some fun. Look, Phil Esposito told me, he's, he's a great man, a great hockey player. I always say, after the 72 Super Series with the Soviet Union, there should be a statue of Tony and Phil Esposito in front of every ice rink across Canada. What that man did with his brother was unbelievable. Really was. And he was a great hockey player, and so was Tony. Two great players. He told me he learned by shooting tennis balls against his garage door at his brother Tony with full equipment. I said, but what about coach? He's what coach? One's one of the greatest scorers, the other one of the greatest goalies. So we, it can be done where we can yeah. expose cheaply, inexpensively, even if it's just opening the door a little bit. If you get 2% of a million, it's a lot of kids. Yeah. If you were born in the last quarter of the 20th century, it may be hard to imagine the animosity that was shared between the USA and the USSR during the Cold War. If we were asked to describe the tensions of that time in one word, it would be hostile. When Lou Veros saw the Soviet hockey team play, he chose not to see them as enemies of the state. He saw them as the best hockey team in the world, and he wanted to learn. So he tracked down Tarasov on his own in the mid-1970s, a time when there was no email, no cell phones, and no internet. The relationship started with a pen and paper. What followed was one of the most unlikely and close-knit friendships in the history of hockey. I go to church, and my grandmother had asked me if I was coming over that afternoon on a Sunday to eat with the family, a lot of people and really good food. And I had my own apartment I had gotten and, uh, you know, I had no money. I was making 60 bucks a week for bought, putting air conditioners in. So I, and, and, and I didn't have a car. Everything was walking and subways and buses and uh, you manage, you can do it. So I ended up going over there and eating and I got bored and I said, can I go in the, uh, bedroom and watch, she had a black and white Zenith TV with rabbit ears and a little foil <laughs> on the top. It was 1969, and there's uh, the World Championships of Ice Hockey, Sweden versus the Soviet Union, and the writing underneath, you know, they, yeah. mm -hmm. and they Take were showing the, 
Soviet team's bench. Uh, this, I see this animated guy, bigger than life, and they had the name, Anatoly Tarasov. Head coach, USSR, his assistant was Chernyshev. They would alternate every two years or every year. And I watched them play. I couldn't believe what I saw. Could not believe, not, not, not just the Soviet team, Swedish team too. Beautiful skating, passing, combination play. I like. I really enjoyed it. I had seen hundreds of NHL games. I was a maniac, fan of the Rangers. I had never missed the game. I had season's tickets. You know how much my tickets cost? Yeah. First row and balcony in the corner. You could almost reach out and touch the players. That's how good a seat it was. What do you think it cost per game? But the nickel. No, two dollars. <laughs> Two dollars. You, you didn't that? use a geo card. So, <laughs> no, fifty cents with the geo <laughs> card. <laughs> 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 yes, right. Side balcony in the old mm. garden. So I mean, uh, you know, I I knew what I was watching. I said, oh, look at the way they play. I was fascinated. And there was a card table in her room. My uncle would use, played pinochle, and there were papers and a pen. Just happened to be, and I wrote the name down. You know like that and I took it, I remember putting it in my sport coat because I had gone to church, I had a sport coat on and a shirt and a tie and all that and a few weeks later I figured it was time I wore that sport jacket enough, I better get it dry cleaned. So I went to the dry cleaners and I was walking out and the lady said, sir, sir, there's a piece of paper in there. I said, ah, throw it away. She said, well, there's something <laughs> written, I don't know what language it is, yeah, right. well, it's an odd name. You know, in Brooklyn, yeah. and in those Not days. Anymore. No, yeah. in those days. <laughs> so I said, ah, all right. I, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. And I went to my apartment and I sat down and I wrote a, a letter saying how much I enjoyed watching it, blah, blah, blah. I was sure, wish there was a way I could learn how you people train and play. Months later, I get a response in like tissue paper, blue <laughs> Paravion envelope. It was like, and it was typed in English, black, blue, green, and red. They must have ran out of ribbons. They lived like we did in the Soviet Union, like less than middle class in Brooklyn lived. They lived. There was mud in the street. They put two by fours, walk on them over the mud. They didn't have, you know, this is stuff, you know, drink water in the summer out of a hydrant if it's on. Right? Mm. So I was comfortable whenever I went. Anyway, he wrote me back. He invited me to come. He told me I'd have to get a visa. Thank you for your compliments and all this. And it was very nice. And that's how I got eventually to meet him and know him. And knew him very, very well. We were really became great friends. Brought him over here. Took him on a tour of the U.S. to do dry land training. It was 1979. And... Uh, I ran into him a hundred. I've been to the Soviet Union and Russia twenty-five times. Wow! So and he was my guest in America three times. Just for me, he, he would come. We would, and I stayed at his flat. Stayed at his dacha. Got drunk with him. Fell asleep <laughs> on the grass. His wife sprinkled water on us. Wake up, boys! <laughs> and uh, he he was truly a great inspiration. More than anything else. Once we were in Niagara Falls on that trip. 
And I said, let's go see the falls, waterfalls. Charlie the Czech, who's here, was the interpreter for the Slovak, Horsky, another great man. And he did gold keeping on that tour. And Chernyshev and Taras are the two most important and famous coaches up to that time of the Soviet Union. Yeah. They were on it. And Lev Zekarovich was alive. He's in, he just had cataract surgery. He lives in Moscow. He was the interpreter, my roommate. He was my roommate. He was a beauty. <laughs> and a good guy, great guy. And uh, so we're looking at the waterfalls, Niagara Falls. It's a world famous thing to watch, right? Mm -hmm. Tarasov would fight with me almost every day, provoke me. And the other guys weren't like that, but he was. And I, I'm from Brooklyn. I can fight back too, you know? So he would say, I thought I was going to see something special. <laughs> we have better ones than the Soviet Union. <laughs> you know, he would. And then I would go at him. Oh, is that why you built the wall in Berlin? To keep the West out? You don't want us to see it? You know, we would, we would really have battles. And the other guys would all <laughs> sit back. Chernyshev would say, "You're treating us so wonderful, Lou." He would say, "Tolia, for Anatoly," like we'd say for James, Jim, Jimmy. He'd say, "Tolia, Tolia, why do you insult our host every day?" <laughs> and uh, it would be like a game, you know. And so uh, we then go downstairs to the aquarium and the dolphins are doing their tricks, and it was above and then below, where you could look in the glass. We were all downstairs watching, and I heard him say something to the interpreter and the other Russian, and uh, they all laughed, you know? And uh, I said, well, what did he say? Lev, what did he say? Yeah. He said, not important. <laughs> And Tarasov, I knew a little Russian, he would say, Shkazat, tell him, Shkazat, 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 and he had to do it. So he told me, he said, mm, Tarasov said, you Americans amaze him. You have such beautiful supermarkets with much fruit and good buildings, nice waterfalls. You have many beautiful things. You can even teach fish to perform the most difficult tasks. Tell me, why can't you teach your hockey players to make a pass through these? <laughs> in addition to his sense of humor, Tarasov was also one of the greatest innovators in regards to teaching the game of hockey. During our conversation, Lou gave us a look into Tarasov's mind and how he would create drills that inspired players to use their creativity as much as their skill sets. He also believed in focusing on a player's strengths over their weaknesses in order to develop their game, something that had such a strong impact on Coach Vero that as soon as he returned home, he began to rethink his own approach to the game. I said, your defensemen are so good at stripping the opponent of the puck without having to take the body out. And he smiled, he said, you do stupid exercises, I've seen them in Canada. I've watched pro teams, the, the drills. That's smart. He said, come, I'll show you. And we were, it was hockey season. He wasn't actively coaching anymore, but he could do anything he wanted. So we go down to Central Army and there was a junior team, 
training. And he called the coach over who had played for him. I think it was uh, Kuskin. And he talked to him and introduced me to him. And he was a good defenseman, Kuskin. And he said, watch. And here's what he did to imagine this. It, it inspired me and it made me think. Because you never copy a drill, he told me, ever. Never copy. Always steal some ideas, but change it. Can I use this? Yeah, yeah. Here's what he did. He'd have, he'd have pucks all around, and he'd have players. He'd blow a whistle, and the defenseman didn't know which of the three groups of forwards was going to go with, and it had to be high speed. No slow stuff. So let's just say this guy here comes. And these are just not averages were good players. He turns backwards. His job is to defend. Soon as this guy reaches the blue line, another guy comes with a puck. So now the defenseman has to stop the first guy and the second. And when the second guy reaches, the third guy comes. So he's got to stop. His instruction is stop all three. The first three or four times the defenseman, he can't stop anybody. You know, he's, not, he's disoriented, he's, but they learn. They, yeah. He figures something out, and before you know it, he stops all three, you know, three days later. And this goes on, and they do this drill, say, for a half hour like that. Let me interrupt you for one second. Hold your thought. You said, you said the same thing now twice, and it's a great buzzword that we're using. They figured it out. Yeah. That is such a part of... Nobody told him where to go. That, that is such a part of the development of a young player. Put them in situations where they can figure some things out. Sorry, look, yep. No, and there's pucks on this end. So then he would add another stage to it. The stage, the second stage was as soon as the guy was successful, stopping them or they were successful scoring, whatever, he said the coach doesn't have to blow a whistle. That defenseman then would have to get a, pick up a puck come and I, I forgot how it, just find a way to designate one guy to forecheck one of those guys would forecheck the defenseman who just was charged with stopping the three now has to pick up a puck get out. and get out yeah. and it's, one of those guys is going to forecheck him and the other two their job is to get open and he's got to find them somehow but that's not all he has to do he's got to defend them so as soon as he makes the pass, he's got to go as hard as he can to try to stop him. So he had second, third, fourth effort like yeah. you do in a game, yeah. but at high speed. Mm -hmm. Things like that. Creativity. Right, but you wonder, you wonder why we fight um, creativity because we want to script everything. Yeah. And, and this, this is where the game, yeah. right? And all you know, people of loose stature and the, and the people that. Uh, Dave works with every day at the, in the college game. That's where the game is. The game yeah. is creativity. You know, obviously a passion, but you have to be able to think on your own, not have a coach script you where you're going to go. Right. And it's really, it's always been there. How could you coach Lemieux? Right. You can tell him. Yeah. You how can't how do you do that. coach any? I told this to Bob. Bob Johnson called me and he said, Lou, I got a real problem. I don't know if you saw any games, but I, I had just come back from Europe. And I hadn't uh, the night before. He said, I'm having my hands full with this kid, Yaga. He's one hell of a talent. But he doesn't come into the zone. He hangs out in, in the neutral zone looking for passes. I said, Bob, I watched him since he's 17. His father 
coached them and clad them. That's how they play. What do you want to change it for? Yeah, yeah. Don't change it. Leave them alone. He says, yeah, but he's not, it doesn't look right. I'm the coach. He's not coming back in the zone. What do you need him in the zone for if he can get guys who can pass the puck to him? Right. You're in first place. What are you getting? Do you want to win the cup one of these days in the next year or two? Don't worry about it. Don't. I said to Tarasov one time, he questioned me. He said, look, I have a question for you. He was a, a movie actor. He was dramatic. Like he wouldn't just <laughs> talk like we do. He would go, I have a question for you. Flip his glasses down. <laughs> you know, I used to call him Michael Barrymore. I said, <laughs> I said uh, what is it? You have a player who's a tremendous talent, can score goals. He has that from God. He got that from God, not from the coach. He can uh, make great plays. But it's not so good coming back to his own zone and defending. What are you going to sp spend most of the time with on him? What would the answer be in those days, especially work work on making him better defensively, yeah. is what I said. I, it didn't matter what I would have said. I would have been wrong. That's how it was. And as soon as I said it, yet... Make him a better scorer. Yeah. Make him a better playmaker. If you build a house, Lou, you don't hire general handyman. You hire specialists, electricians, carpenters, plumbers. Same with hockey players. They should be specialized. It has to be passionate in their heart to do something. Any idiot, any idiot can play well defensively. It takes discipline unselfishness, a good level of conditioning, which all your players should have anyway, but it doesn't take talent. Scoring goals, making plays takes great talent. And, and, and those are things that stayed with me, and of course I was ridiculed by most of the hockey establishment for many, many years, and I never backed off, not even that much from what I thought was right and did it, did it, and I know, I have to say it, I know we're better as a hockey country today because a lot of people followed that as an example afterwards, they weren't afraid. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for this edition of Our Kids Play Hockey. We hope you enjoyed this very special edition podcast with Lou Barrow. As always, you can listen to any of the other episodes we've done at OurKidsPlayHockey.com, or you can check them out uh, on any really podcast server that you guys like to listen on. Wherever you listen to your podcasts, we're most likely there. So that's going to do it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.